This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, we've started, and you are David Enrich. I am Bill Domnarski. Today is September 13th, 2022. We're doing a podcast for the New Books Network about your terrific new book called Servants of the Dam. And I have to say that's one of the best titles I've come across in some time. And your subtitle is, so we have Servants of the Dam, then subtitle, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the corruption of justice. Now, that is a great series of topics. Turns out I know a little bit about your subject in the sense that I wrote a book about, I guess it was about eight years ago, about the legal profession. So I had a chance to dip into the history of big law firms, the history of billable hour, um, but I had no occasion to run into the kind of thing that you write about, which is the corruption uh, of a big law firm. And uh, I want to ask you about that in some detail. But before I get to that, let me ask you a little bit about you. You work at the New York Times. What do you do for them? Uh, so I'm the business investigations editor, which is a kind of vague title. So I run a small group of investigative reporters who look into big businesses and have their effects on the economy, the society, things like that. And then in my spare time, I also do my own investigative work. Uh, whether it's for the New York Times or for books. I kind of, I kind of uh, split my time between editing a small group of just awesome reporters and then doing my own work as well. Now, this is not your first book. Tell me about the others that you've written. Yeah, this is my third book, in fact. Uh, the first one, which was published in 2017, was called The Spider Network. And that was about, all of these are nonfiction, by the way. And uh, that was about a vast financial scandal involving the manipulation of financial markets. And it was basically told through the lens of this kind of mid-level employee of a bunch of international banks who became essentially the scapegoat. That maybe is a little tough, but essentially the scapegoat for a whole lot of wrongdoing that was kind of endemic throughout the banking industry. So that was the first one. The second one, which was published in... Uh, the beginning of 2020, was Dark Towers, which explored the history of Deutsche Bank and its relationship enabling and propping up Donald Trump. Um, so that was really a deep dive into this in criminal enterprise, which was Deutsche Bank. And but, but kind of interwoven with that was the personal stories of some of the men who had helped build the bank, many of whom met tragic ends. And now there's this one, Servants of the Damned. Well, I have to ask, what are tragic ends? Uh, the people uh, like death. 
Yeah, death. Holy death, cow. Death, multiple people. Uh, I had some uh, died by suicide, others. And in fact, actually, the central kind of character of that book is a guy named Bill Brooksmith, who was a senior executive at Deutsche Bank for many years, helped build the place. And uh, the book opens uh, with him being found hanging in his apartment in London. And the book in large part is a mystery about why he chose to do that. And it's that it, half of the book is kind of told through the father's perspective, Bill Brooksmith's perspective, and the second half is told through his son's perspective, a guy named Val Brooksmith, who um, tries to figure out why his dad died and ends up in the process uh, finding a lot of his dad's work-related files, which shed a lot of light on the inner workings of Deutsche Bank. Well, you've sold me on that one. When we finish, I'm going to go to Amazon and get it. Uh, let me ask you, I'm asking you not just about uh, those two books, but also about this book. Um, the Eureka moment, the I found it moment, the I've got it moment. When did you have those moments for those two books and then for this current book? That is to say, when did you realize you had a book and that you had mm -hmm. a great story to tell? You know, it's it, it's different for each of the three books. I mean, the Spider Network, which was my first one, was I'd never written a book before. I'd always aspired to, uh, but I had no idea what it really entailed or how to go about attacking it. And so I'd been working on a series of stories in which uh, this bank employee named Tom Hayes uh, had secretly opened up to me and I was meeting with him and he was sharing a lot of evidence with me. And he, this was a guy who was the alleged mastermind of this vast international financial scandal. And I, I at the time worked for the Wall Street Journal. And so we did a bunch of stories uh, about this guy and the role he played and some of the things that he had handed over to me. And at a certain point, I just got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm only a fraction of what I'm learning and experience th experiencing through my interactions with Tom were making it into Wall Street Journal stories. And it just felt people kept, who I would talk to about this, uh, including my colleagues, kept telling me, you know, this is a movie, this is a movie. And it occurred to me, maybe it's a book. And it, uh, so the Eureka moment was kind of slow, but steady. And even once I decided I had enough to write a book and found a publisher who was willing to publish it, I still, like, throughout the process, was not actually sure that I would ever have a book that was finished or that anyone would actually read. Uh, and the subsequent two books have, frankly, been a lot clearer to me, um, in part just because I, I think I'd had a lot of experience at that point laboring over the first book. Um, so with Dark Towers, the Deutsche Bank book, I had, it had been in the back of my mind for quite a while. And there was a moment where it just, I mean, it just clicked. I remember walking in the door at home one night and telling my wife, I've got my idea for my next book. And it was, I kind of explained to her how, you know, the story about the Brooksmith family that I'd been pursuing for a while. And the fact that Deutsche Bank was so uh, interwoven with Donald Trump's finances, those things just kind of collided in my brain on a walk home from the train station one, one evening. And I just knew it. Uh, and this one, what the Servants of the Damned was similar, I guess. Um, it was really, I had been for a long time, I've been covering business for like 20 years. And it, uh, behind every big business scandal that I covered, there's always one or more big law firms lurking and kind of trying to spin things and secretly providing information to me and other journalists and giving God only knows what kind of counsel to their clients. And I had just always thought that the institutions of law firms were not properly covered by the mainstream media, including by myself. And uh, 
I've been dying to just really dig into a big law firm, which they, they spend so much time and money trying to keep their affairs secret. And that to me as a journalist is just like paints a big target on their back. Um, and it, so for me, the moment I had been kind of thinking about law firms as a topic for a book. And then in the fall of 2020, uh, with the election in either both before and after the, the presidential election, I realized that Jones Day, which is this big corporate law firm that I'd never paid that much attention to, honestly, but has really interwoven with uh, the Trump campaign and the Republican Party and was getting involved in some of the litigation surrounding the election. And it, again, I just had this moment. I remember walking in the door one night and telling my wife, I've got it. And she looked at me like, oh, my goodness, you're going to go down this path again. Because, uh, now, but I did. My, my, guess, we are. my guess is that when you said to her, I've got it, you had a pretty big smile on your face. I, you know, it's funny. I did have a pretty big smile on my face, but I was trying to, you know, like bite my tongue a little to suppress it because my poor wife, like, these are, I mean, I, these books are hard. They take years. And I have two little kids and it's just like a big commitment, not just by me, the reporter and the writer, but like my whole family kind of suffers. Uh, my wife definitely suffers because it's just, you know, I'm work. I have a day job, and I'm working. End up working a lot of nights and mornings and weekends. So this um, this book is not just reporting. I mean, you have uh, a lot of historical information about the growth of big law firms, which yeah. sets the stage, so to speak. Uh, why don't we start there? Uh, there was a big transformation in the legal profession in the 20th century. Um, before actually the uh, the decision, the Bates decision that allowed lawyers to advertise, there was a growing um, uh, corporations were becoming more important in America, and as a result, yeah. law firms began to cater to them, and they began to grow. What would you put as the date for about this growth? I'm sorry, the date? Yeah, was it the 50s, the 60s? What did it really start? Oh, man, that's a good question. I mean, I, it's, I don't think there's a way to pinpoint the data. And as you said, corporations are becoming more important in the economy and in kind of the American way of life, and it's certainly post-World War II. And... It, and it wasn't just that corporations were becoming more important, though. It was that they were becoming bigger and less associated with individual cities and increasingly uh, global. I mean, the, the economy was globalizing and companies were globalizing and law firms perceived, I think, a combination of a need and an opportunity to go first to go national and then to go global along with their clients. And I hadn't even real. I, I guess I hadn't spent that much time thinking about it until I dove into this book, but I had not realized until I began researching this that until 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the notion of a national law firm that had offices in you know a dozen cities in the United States, that wasn't really a thing, right? And law firms historically had been associated with just one city in which they were historically based. And in Jones Day's case, that was Cleveland. But, you know, there are examples all over the country of uh, what are now huge international law firms that have their roots in this one kind of seemingly random city. And they were attached in large part to the big companies, the big hometown employers of those cities. And as those companies began getting uh, expanding nationally and then internationally the law firms in many cases kind of rode along went along for that ride with them the fact that they're they're big and they're in multiple cities emphasizes the uh point that you bring out in one of your interviews someone says 
that law firms are revenue-generating entities or machines or something to that mm -hmm. effect. This, this, I've always been a solo practitioner as a lawyer. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years, always been a solo practitioner, never had to worry about satisfying other people when it came mm -hmm. to money. Now that's about, you can't get any further from Jones yeah. Day in, in law firms like that. So you talk to all these people and you came across, I, I think your conclusion is, all they care about is money. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far. And I think, but I do think that money became kind of the core motivating principle for a lot of lawyers and a lot of law firms. Um, and, you know, the bigger law firms got, the more money they needed to pay for that expansion and to hire more lawyers, open new offices and things like that. And the way you do that is by taking on new clients and new assignments. And so a lot of law firms have been caught, and for, this is not a new phenomenon, this has been happening for decades, but we're caught in kind of this vicious cycle where the more they grew, the more money they needed to generate, which meant they needed to take on more clients, more assignments, which meant they needed to hire more associates. Those associates go on the track toward partnership, which means that there's you're set to have a smaller, or the same size pie for more people, uh, which means you need to expand the pie, which means you need more assignments and more clients, and round and round we go. and you know, lawyers, not just at Jones State, but across the the industry of big law, I think are often a pretty miserable bunch because they feel this just relentless, never ending pressure for more, more, more. And for a lot of lawyers who I've spoken to, this starts off when, you know, they're, get, they're preparing to graduate from law school. And a lot of them just have huge uh, student loans that they have to pay off. And law school is expensive and college is expensive. And there's a very easy way to address that, which is to take a big job at a big corporate law firm, which is going to pay you just right off the bat, like a salary that is well into the six figures. And I think it then becomes harder and harder to walk away or pull back from the financial freedom that that kind of money provides. But I also think it's worth emphasizing, at least in the case of Jones Day. I mean, one of the things that I've found so extraordinary about them is that, yes, they are a huge law firm, they generate billions of dollars a year in revenue. Uh, they're definitely a profit-making machine. But at the same time, one of the things that sets them apart a little bit is that there's a core of people at the top of the firm who, more than money, I think, are driven by their ideology. And they are, you know, it's run by a bunch of people who have a very conservative uh point of view and feel very strongly about that and are therefore willing to take on assignments that don't generate a whole lot of money or in some cases are pro bono that are devoted toward uh, kind of spreading this message of and, and helping other like-minded organizations. And it's, I, I so the way I, I like to think about it is basically there's a lot of these lawyers and law firms are motivated by money, but a lot of them are also motivated by power. And I think those are both phenomenon that existed to a certain extent decades ago, but not nearly to the extent that they do today. All right. I, I, I don't want you to think this is a challenge because it's not. But I want to bring into our discussion a different idea. You talk about ideology at the top. What about mm -hmm. personality at the top? You can't help but yeah. notice in your book you have some really wild characters running these law firms, especially Jones mm -hmm. Day. You have wonderful thumbnail portraits of these people running this mammoth 
uh, law firm. And they yeah. all seem to be a little uh, personality uh, defective, if that's a phrase. Um, <laughs> they have something wrong with them in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's trick. This is one of the trickiest things about writing this book for me was that I did not get a I, you know, I spoke to so many people there, but the people at the very top were, can you hear me? Yeah, we're all set now. Okay. Uh, I don't know where you lost me, but one of the challenges I had in writing this book was that I had a ton of people talking to me, but the people at the top were much more guarded. And the person at the very top, Steve Brogan, who runs Jones Day and has done so for 20 years now, he refused to communicate with me at all. And I sent him many, many messages requesting an interview or a meeting, uh, and he never engaged with me at all. And so I've done my best to paint a picture of Brogan that is fair and accurate um, by talking to, you know, so many of his former or of his current and former colleagues, former classmates, childhood friends, reading, I think, literally probably every word that's ever been written about the guy. Um, and yeah, he is an unusual character. His dad was a New York City cop. His mom was not really in the picture for health reasons. And he had a very conservative Catholic upbringing and has, he's a, a, a large family, a number of kids. And people told me, a lot of people told me that that is the kind of the single defining thing about him, that uh, he is devoted to his family, he is devoted to his faith, and he is devoted to Jones Day. And it, and he is motivated by a very conservative ideology. And this is a guy who does not really seem to be interested in brooking the whole lot of dissent with his subordinates. Uh, I was told repeatedly that he, um, you know, people, while he was on the road visiting Jones Day's far-flung offices, he is, this is the kind of person who the managers of those offices, the, the partners and the lawyers in charge of those offices around the world would warn their colleagues in advance before he arrived that they really should not be alone talking to him, that they should have kind of a chaperone there to make sure that they don't say the wrong thing. I heard a number of stories about how people would make kind of stray casual remarks about, oh, my wife works for you know, a liberal group or a liberal political party and Brogan on the golf course, for example, would just go on a tirade about the evils of socialism, which is, you know, neither here nor there to the the fact of where this lawyer's wife happens to work. And uh, these are really hard charging people, many of whom have a very, uh, you know, of who, who really live and eat, breathe, and sleep their politics. And I think for a lot of people who do not have the same political inclinations as they do, that made it at times a challenging place to work. Well, you mentioned that in the context of the 2016 election, uh, where there were a number of people in Jones Day, lawyers, who weren't really comfortable with supporting um, yeah. Donald Trump. What kind of friction did that create at the law firm? It created a lot of friction. I mean, there were, and it, and it came in kind of phases. So originally, Jones Day got in with the Trump campaign because in 2015, uh, uh, they, or I'm sorry, in 2014, they hired a bunch of lawyers, Republican lawyers from the law firm Patton Boggs in DC. And they were hired to basically start a political and election law practice inside Jones Day. And their entire goal 
was to help serve Republicans. They were not interested in uh, anyone on the left. And, you know, this is right as the 2016 presidential election was just starting to get underway. And so they got a bunch of potential, you know, wannabe Republican presidents, including Trump. And for a long while, this wasn't really something that most people at the law firm knew about. Um, but gradually, uh, the firm and one lawyer in particular, Don McGahn, became so publicly involved in the campaign, including appearing on stage with Trump, uh, in one case, uh, hosting a very important and high profile meeting for Trump and other Republicans at Jones Day's offices in Washington, that it became impossible to miss. And the reactions really varied. I mean, a lot of lawyers were just apoplectic about this because not only was not only did they uh, disagree with Trump politically, but I think they found a lot of his rhetoric and uh, his stances on things to be demagogish and uh, just completely over the line. And but there were also a lot of people, kind of especially I think older lawyers at the firm who basically saw this as, you know, our job is to represent clients and some of those clients are unpopular and polarizing and that is what we do as lawyers. So I might not like this particular client, but that does not mean we shouldn't represent him. And basically as time passed and Trump's campaign and then his administration and then his 2020 campaign grew more and more uh, radical and I think that it became harder and harder for people to ignore. So that by, you know, by 2020, you had a bunch of very senior people at the firm, including some who had worked on the Trump campaigns for Jones Day, they resigned and did so in, in some cases in a kind of public way that led to this friction within the firm, which, you know, one of the things Steve Brogan prides himself on in running Jones Day is keeping internal stuff from becoming external stuff. And he's really into maintaining kind of culture of secrecy, I think. And uh, so for him, seeing this stuff burst into public view, burst into the open, and having Jones Day be something that was written about in the media, and I, I think it was made for some very uncomfortable times inside the firm. Was there much precedent for this, the idea that a law firm would in a way get into bed with a, uh, a, a particular candidate? Now, I imagine it's happened plenty of times where law firms think, well, if we have a connection to a particular candidate and that candidate succeeds, then we might end up with some of our people becoming judges. Yeah. I mean, that's a kind of a yeah, or well-worn path to the judiciary. Right. Um, but in the past, have other big law firms got so entangled with a particular candidate? Not like this, no. And I've, I have not come across any examples of a law firm becoming enmeshed the way Jones Day was. I mean, Jones Day not only represented his campaigns and had his, it had its offices, which are in these, is just this gorgeous building right at the foot of Capitol Hill. Um, and their building became a backdrop for the Trump campaign on a number of, and for the Trump administration on a number of occasions. They, Jones Day, the Republican convention in 2016 happened to be in Cleveland and uh, Jones Day historically is from Cleveland. And so the firm was a sponsor of the convention. It hosted all sorts of events in its offices. Uh, it had, and then when the Trump, when Trump wins and his administration gets underway, this really extraordinary transfer of power takes place where Don McGahn becomes White House counsel, Noel Francisco, another Jones State partner, becomes the Solicitor General. And throughout the White House and the Justice Department, there were just 
it was the hordes of Jones Day lawyers going over there. And that was, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this. No one could think of a precedent for this. It's, it's not unusual to have lawyers from corporate law firms going into new administrations. It is really unusual to have it happen uh, in this, at this volume. Well, there's been some very recent reporting um, on what the uh, the Trump Department of Justice was, was up to uh, in his mm -hmm. administration. And it had, according to the sources, a very political agenda. Now, did that come from, do you think, the lawyers or from Trump himself? I don't. I'm not an expert in what makes Trump tick, but he is not a man who strikes me as particularly driven by ideology. Um, so I think he wanted, I think Trump, and again, I'm speaking as a consumer of Trump information, not as someone who's ever spoken to the guy, but my sense is that Trump was kind of a vessel that a lot of these very ideological lawyers from Jones Day and, and people from elsewhere as well were using to kind of enact their agenda. And so, and Don McGahn, who became White House counsel and who was the man who Trump had essentially delegated all of the power in selecting judicial nominees, McGahn was someone who had a very clear and well-articulated vision of what he thought the federal government should look like and what he thought the uh, judicial system should look like. And he set out, and in a nutshell, that was on the on the courts. He wanted young conservatives who would hew to the letter of the Constitution generally as it was written in the late 18th century. And in the executive branch of the government, he thought that federal agencies wielded way too much power and that it was really important to rein that power in and kind of return power to uh, the private citizens and organizations and businesses whose rights he perceived as being trampled upon by the what he called the administrative state. And it is not a coincidence at all that I think two of the Trump administration's greatest achievements were a completely remaking the federal judiciary and b substantially reining in the power of federal federal agencies to oversee things like you know carbon emissions and uh, the health and safety of consumer products and things like that. That it's not a coincidence. That is a direct where did, cause. Where did this? Uh... Where did this come from for him? Because you paint a very nice picture of him uh, playing his guitar in a rock band. Mm -hmm. It seems to be uh, kind of against type that he would have such conservative views. He well, even conservatives like music. talks about his long hair and his um, yeah. general demeanor. Uh, where did it come from for him to be so aggressively conservative? He, so, I mean, I, I, uh, what McGann has told me and what he said publicly is that he just since he was a uh, a boy growing up in New Jersey, he just had this hatred for what he called concentrated power. And where that actually came from in his life is a bit of a mystery to me. And I think, you know, there are uh, one thing you could think about, look back on. I'm not sure if this is I don't want to be too much of an armchair psychologist here, but I'm. His family and his extended family was a real power center in New Jersey Democratic politics for many years. And I think that, but, but his immediate family was not. And I wondered whether the, this was kind of an act of rebellion, essentially deciding that he wanted to oppose not just what kind of the ideology of his extended family, but also 
you know, the Democratic Party in New Jersey back in that day was a machine and it was not something that was I, I think there's probably a lot of corruption and just a lot of machine politics going on. And it has occurred to me, but I cannot say this is a fact at all, that maybe that's part of what was motivating him, that he saw how his extended family, the power they were wielding, it made him maybe a little uncomfortable. He saw the power of the federal government to do things that made him uncomfortable. But there's no doubt that by the time he was in college, and then in law school, and there are a bunch of events taking place in the national scene that radicalized a whole lot of young Republicans like him. I mean, most of all being the Bork hearings um, when, when Bork was nominated to the Supreme Court. And from a conservative perspective, he was essentially railroaded. Um, and that was a transformative moment for McGahn and many others who took that as kind of the starter pistol in this really a war over the direction of the federal judiciary. And I think from that point on, McGahn, I don't think he knew exactly what he wanted to do or what he wanted to be or how he would get there, but I think he had it in his head that that was one of his life's missions, which was to kind of fight back against that the, the liberal influence on the courts and on the American government more broadly. What about the other... Uh... Uh, folks from Jones Day, you mentioned the Solicitor General. Uh, what about these other folks who uh, um, gain great power in the administration? Do they have a similar kind of uh, uh, backstory, origin story when it comes to their ideology? Yeah, and Noel Francisco is another really fascinating one. This is I, there are a lot of fascinating ones. Noel Francisco is fascinating. Mike Carvin, uh, who is one of the most senior lawyers at the firm and is a Reagan administration veteran and a frequent uh, lawyer appearing before the Supreme Court. And both of that, both Carvin and um, Francisco, you know, grew up in working class towns. Um, uh, uh, Francisco had a, he was the son of an immigrant and uh, both of them Catholic. And uh, I, I think just, you know, there are people, people come from all sides of the political spectrum spectrum. They both came from the conservative side, although, and, you know, these are also two very different people. Mike Carvin is known as this incredibly kind of bombastic and at times coarse and uh, grating loudmouth, although that I haven't had that personal experience with him, but he is certainly someone who is very much a fire, a, a firebrand on the right. Uh, and then you have Noel Francisco, who is just as conservative and socially as well as economically, and yet is this very mild-mannered, charming, charismatic man who, you know, everyone loves him even if they hate his politics. And so it's really this kind of motley crew of uh, pretty far-right and very talented lawyers who have come and they've gravitated toward Jones Day in part because the because Brogan is, I think, so conservative himself, but also in part because the firm has been kind of fearless, I think, in taking on causes as well as clients that do not appeal to most of most giant law firms. And most giant law firms are run are, I think, probably left of center or at least middle of the road. Jones Day is a really rare counterexample to that. And it's extremely big and has become extremely powerful in part because it has not shied away from taking on uh, causes and clients that many other big law firms would be pretty reluctant to embrace. So Jones Day had made a reputation defending 
uh, big tobacco. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was one of their. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No, no, no. Go. I, 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 I was going to say, tell me about. I'd like to go back to the description you give of the tobacco industry and how Jones Day served it is really uh, uh, compelling. But while we're talking about these uh, personalities and Jones Day who then go to government, um, where does the Federalist Society um, fit in? Well, it's front and center is where it fits in. I mean, they're. All of these lawyers are members of the federal society. Some of them, including Damagan, were leaders of their local federal society chapters in law school and beyond. And, you know, they are just deeply part of that network. And uh, and McGann once said that he liked to make this joke uh, when he would give speeches to the federal society. He would say that he was sick and tired of people grumbling that the Trump administration had outsourced the process of judicial selection to the Federalist Society. Instead, and this is the punchline, we didn't outsource it, we insourced it, ha ha ha. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he he once said to another Federalist Society gathering, I might get this quote a little bit wrong, but I am you, you are me. And he. this is something that is extremely core to their identities as conservatives and conservative lawyers. And it's just what they were very proud of. And they had a kind of hand in hand, the, the law firm and its lawyers both had a hand in hand relationship with the Federalist Society at many times where, you know, they before uh, before Trump was even elected in 2016, they were working together to vet and identify candidates for judgeships. Uh, once, and McGahn has said that in the White House Counsel's office, the lawyers he hired, every single one of them, he said, were members of the Federalist Society. And so it's just like a pretty fully integrated operation. I do think, in fairness to Jones Day, it's worth mentioning here that, you know, this is a law firm with something like 2,500 lawyers. And the, the, the ones who have primarily caught my attention are the ones at the top who are, as I've described them. But... You know, it's a big law firm with many lawyers who are not uh, Federalist Society members, who are not conservative, in fact, who are quite liberal. And they and they and some of their colleagues have done amazing pro bono work helping uh, the poor, the needy. Uh, they've done life-saving work helping refugees and immigrants along the U.S.-Mexican border. So I don't want to – the firm is not a monolith. What What is much closer to a monolith is its composition at the top. And the cases they've taken on in Republican circles where they kind of put the whole force of the firm's most elite lawyers behind those causes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So Donald Trump was able to put three people on the Supreme Court. What's the connection between their nominations, uh, their confirmations, and Jones Day? How much of a role did Jones Day have in giving us these three Supreme Court justices? 
Well, Jones Day before the Trump administration played, as I said, a pivotal role in helping identify judicial nominees. That was when Don McGahn still worked at Jones Day, but was also uh, representing um, the Trump campaign. And so McGahn and a bunch of colleagues leave to go to the White House. And there from the White House, they and McGahn and his team handpicked uh, both Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh. Now, Jones Day, I think, would argue that that has nothing to do with Jones Day. It was these; they were picked after they, after McGahn and his team had left the White House, and that's true. Except that a lot of the vetting had taken place while he was at Jones Day, and all of his colleagues were from Jones Day, and so you know, it's kind of a semantic point. I guess it's not like Jones Day institutionally was the one that made that decision. It was their their once and future lawyers. Um, and Amy Coney Barrett is someone who McGahn, while he was in the White Counsel's office, plucked from academic experience, sorry, plucked from academic obscurity to sit on a federal appeals court with the more or less express intent of one day having her nominated to the Supreme Court if a vacancy arose. So McGahn's fingerprints are all over all three of them. And I think there's a slightly more complicated argument about what responsibility or credit or blame Jones Day institutionally can get for that. But I mean, look, there's no question, even recently, and one of the things I learned, actually, unfortunately, after the book was uh, printed, was that the day after Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett came up to New York to attend the 50th birthday party of the husband of one of Jones Day's most prominent lawyers. And, you know, she was Amy Coney Barrett was there at the party with a bunch of other Jones Day lawyers, including Noel Fran and was chatting with Noel Francisco at one point. And at that very time, Jones Day had a case, a live case before the Supreme Court that would, in fact, just days after this party would get decided in favor of the law firm's clients. And I'm not trying to suggest there's causation there at all, but it, it, it's, a, I think, a pretty powerful illustration of just how interwoven not only the law firm is with the conservative movement and the judges that McGahn helped get on the bench, but I mean, just ideologically, these people are traveling in the same circles. They're coming from the same places. They all, many of them clerk, clerk together for the same justices, and chiefly Scalia. And it, so it is a, it, it's a very finely woven mesh uh, that I think overlaps a lot between the law firm and top lawyers and this conservative movement. Well, did McGahn know Gorsuch and Kavanaugh personally before the nominations? You know, that is a good question, and I don't know. Um, I should know that, but I don't know. And what about the Notre Dame connection? I mean, Barrett uh, yeah. talked there, and the leader of the firm was a big Notre Dame fan. Yeah, and there. Yeah, in fact, the most, so uh, Brogan, who's, you know, going into his, or finishing his 20th year as managing partner was went to law school at Notre Dame. It serves on the school's board of trustees. McGann, or uh, Brogan's predecessor, a guy named Pat McCartan, went to both college and law school at Notre Dame, served on the board of trustees there as well. And so there is a deep connection between Notre Dame and Jones Day. And, and in fact, Jones Day also represented Notre Dame when it along with a bunch of other Catholic groups in uh, 2012, sued the Obama administration as part of kind of a broad concerted effort to undercut Obamacare. And so Jones Day would argue that it does not represent causes, it represents clients. And I think literally that is true. 
And I think when you dig a little bit more, you realize that while that is true, that's in part because they're picking clients and soliciting clients where they like the causes. And I, I don't think there's a clearer example of that than the interrelationship between these senior John Taylors and places like Notre Dame. You're talking about at least one cause, which is employers um, in contraception having to mm -hmm. uh, pay for the contraception of employees. I thought Jones Day actually was pretty active sending out letters to all kinds of companies trying to find the right plaintiff to challenge that. Oh, 100%. That's exactly right. I mean, there's, and that's kind of what I was trying to say, but maybe not very articulately. And yes, they are representing clients in those cases, but they're handpicked clients that they were trying to drum up themselves to because they had a cause in mind. And Jones Day was the leading law firm going after Obamacare. And it wasn't just about the contraception issue, which incidentally was kind of an issue that was created of whole cloth, but I won't get into that. But there's, and they had at least three other or two other fronts where they were fighting Obamacare on and where they had, were representing in some cases pro bono, very deep pocketed uh, corporate funded right wing groups that were uh, just trying to kill Obamacare because they didn't like it. And it, so, it, you know, the American Lawyer magazine once described, I think it was the American Lawyer, once described Obamacare as Jones Day's Moby Dick because it was something that, and, and this is bef long before Trump came into the scene, this is something that the firm's leaders really objected to. And I think, and Brogan himself was one of those who felt personally very strongly about this issue. And I, I think that was kind of the dawn of a real political awakening inside Jones Day that became the foundation for a, a lot of what was to follow, including the extensive work for the Trump campaigns and the Trump administration. Does it go too far to say that these are activist lawyers? Some of them certainly are. I, I don't think it goes too far. I and mean, I think there's, um, you, you know, there are Mike Carvin, who is, I, I mentioned earlier, um, who is, you know, under consideration to be Solicitor General at one point, I think has been, uh, you know, he's one of the, he's widely regarded as a very talented Supreme Court lawyer. Um, and he, at the 2016 Republican Convention in Cleveland, Carvin uh, was on a panel in Jones Day's headquarters, where he spoke out against Hillary Clinton, and I don't have the quote in front of me, unfortunately, but he went on this just, I think a screed would probably not be too strong a word, and just ranting and raving and comparing, uh, I think he said something to the effect of, if Hillary Clinton gets elected, saying that there will be moderate judges to come out of the Hillary Clinton administration is like saying that there will be moderates in Iran. It's like something that does not exist in nature. And so it is stuff like that where, you know, Hillary Clinton, you can love her, you can hate her, you can hate, you can disagree with her politics. But it's, this is not someone who is like a socialist, right? This is someone who the Clintons are like, you know, they're left of center, but they're not radicals. And so, so Carmen certainly has, I think, become a bit of an activist, at least in some of his speaking, if not his lawyering. And I think just given the work that a lot of these people did for the Trump administration and the causes and clients have taken on since leaving the Trump administration, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that some of them are activists. I do think, in fairness, again, not within Jones Day, really, but other big corporate law firms, and Paul Weiss is one that comes to mind, there are a lot of liberal activists. And it's so this is not 
to me, Jones Day is interesting, not because it's unique, but in fact, because in some ways, many ways, it's really emblematic of the legal industry writ large. We've talked about Jones Day in um, the election of 2016, governing the country uh, with Trump as president. What role did they have in the 2020 election? Well, so they, the 2020 election from a legal standpoint uh, started essentially, I think it was the day of Trump's inauguration in 2017. That's when he created his, the new, you know, reelect Trump campaign committees. And from the get-go, Jones Day was representing that 2020 campaign as well. And that was something that the firm at the highest levels had talked about, whether they wanted to kind of double down on their work for Trump, given how, uh, how polarizing he was and how unconventional he was, to put it mildly. And it, so that work kind of proceeded apace for the next uh, three plus years. But by 2020, uh, this is obviously in the middle of a pandemic, and Trump began the, the series of just high intensity attacks on absentee voting, mail in voting, started mail in voting, started warning that there is a real possibility that if he lost, it was because the election was rigged. And this is dangerous rhetoric. I mean, first of all, it's completely unfounded. There's not any evidence ever of serious voter fraud really uh, affecting the outcome of a presidential election. And second of all, he was not basing this on anything substantive. I mean, there was, as we all now know, this is part of a ploy to undermine the integrity of the American electoral system, which he did quite effectively. And I think within Jones Day, that became a lot of people recognized that and were very uncomfortable with the role the firm was continuing to play in potentially legitimizing some of the baseless claims that Trump was spreading. And this really came to a head in Pennsylvania, which was uh, you know, the most important battleground state in the country. And ultimately, the election came down to Pennsylvania. And uh, Jones Day lawyers working uh, alternately for the Trump campaign and for the Republican Party filed a bunch of legal motions in Pennsylvania that were, all of them were seeking to make it harder for mail-in or absentee ballots to be counted. And I don't, you know, the years have passed since then, but that was something that was widely expected it was Democrats inordinately who were the ones who were doing this mail-in voting, because, in part because Trump had been railing against it for months. Uh, and so Jones Day was basically making an, a legal argument that it should be harder to for mail-in votes and absentee votes in Pennsylvania to count. And the reason they were arguing that was that there was a risk of some combination of fraud or uh, other, you know, other problems with these ballots that may or may not have actually occurred. And within Jones Day, the work that uh, the firm's lawyers were doing on this Pennsylvania ballot, this, these Pennsylvania ballot issues, it was just the straw that broke the camel's back for quite a few lawyers. And it, it sparked, I think, probably an unprecedented internal outcry at the firm. It led to the departures of several of the firm's uh, Democratic lawyers. And it really, it was the moment where Jones Day in some circles became kind of the symbol of the establish, of establishment institutions lending credibility to Trump and his allies at a time when Trump and his allies were dead set on 
him clinging to power, even at the expense of our democracy. Were there any Jones Day lawyers uh, who were part of this, this cadre of, I guess you could all of me, almost call them unhinged lawyers who were making these uh, grand conspiracy arguments uh, after the election? The yeah, ones are related to disciplinary problems, for instance. Yeah, I'm glad you're asking that. And the answer is no, there were not. And Jones Day didn't have anything to do with any of those, I think you're right to describe them as unhinged, uh, just the baseless garbage legal complaints that were filed by Trump and his allies all over the country. So they, and I think that's something that has gotten a little bit lost at times in the coverage of Jones Day, especially back in 2020. And frankly, I probably have like some responsibility for that because we, my colleagues and I at the Times wrote a story that it didn't conflate what was going on, but it, it lumped them in, it lumped Jones Day in with some of the other law firms that were being um, a bit less discriminating, you could say, about the cases they took on. But I think the important thing here, at least from my standpoint, is that while Jones Day argues that the work it was doing in Pennsylvania was simply them litigating a legitimate constitutional issue on behalf of a client, that is, in the eyes of many people at Jones Day, among other places, that is almost kind of a willfully blind reading of what they were doing. And this is not them trying to sort out fact from fiction and trying to uphold the integrity of an election. It was them trying to use and exploit the law to win a partisan advantage for their clients at the expense of people's votes being counted. And that is something that a lot of lawyers on both the left and the right were very uncomfortable with being party to. Okay, uh, let me shift a little bit and ask you more about how you wrote the book. One of the things that jumps off the page is how Jones Day would use intimidation as a litigation strategy, especially with uh, uh, smaller plaintiffs. You have a wonderful story about a small town in Massachusetts um, and how Jones Day just um, threatened them in a way with their letters saying, if you proceed with this litigation, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to you. Um, when you were writing the book, talking to people, did Jones Day ever do anything that was remotely threatening or intimidating to you? No, they didn't. And I think, you know, I've been like anyone who's been writing about business for a long time. Uh, we are, I am accustomed, my colleagues are accustomed, uh, my rivals are accustomed to getting to when we tackle uh, sensitive topics, controversial topics, the subjects of those stories will often hire uh, outside law firms to write us letters that are, you know, in the benign form, kind of exerting pressure and in the less benign form are just outright trying to stop publication, threatening to sue us. And I was bracing for that to happen with Jones Day. And I think to their credit, they did not, they certainly didn't go down the extreme path. I mean, they, uh, a lot of their lawyers, um, I think with authorization from Brogan, ended up responding to very detailed written questions that I submitted. Um, and they did so, I think for the most part, pretty candidly and in a way that certainly affected the way I wrote about a lot of things. Uh, they did, Jones Day did in the kind of the later stages of this process, hire its own outside law firm to represent them and to write a series of, uh, I would say, 
tough letters to my publisher complaining about me and complaining about some of the things that they thought I was planning to write. And, and they were very, those letters were quite explicit in saying they were not trying to stop publication of the book, but they were arguing forcefully that they deserved to be able to see a copy of the book, a draft of the book before it was published, which is not what we do in journalism and generally not what we do in the publishing industry. Um, and the letters with the passage of time, I think, got more and more heated. But again, I've seen a lot of these letters in my career, and this was, they were not at the extreme end. And I think Joan say, I don't know if that's because that's just not how they do things, or more likely it's that they were very sensitive to the possibility that if they did write letters like that, that were really threatening or trying to stop publication, that that would kind of feed into a narrative about them that was not what they wanted to be spreading. Well, what an extraordinary idea that they wanted to see the manuscript before it was published. They're asking yeah. to be what? A, a super editor of it, the, of the manuscript? Yeah, that's, that's an extraordinary I mean, idea. I, it's, yeah, it strikes me as crazy as well. And one of the things I found interesting, look, there are, and I'm not trying, I'm certainly not trying to apologize for Jones Day at all here, but I, there are anecdotes in the book about some other law firms, and namely Paul Weiss, and the tactics it was using with journal, some other journalists that I have no connection to. And what Jones Day was doing is the, a fairly mild version of that, certainly a mild version. The, the book recounts another example of, uh, a, law, a big law firm in the UK uh, that was representing um, a Malaysian billionaire who is accused in many places in the world of a huge fraud. And the law firm, basically, instead of having not gotten any luck with the book's publisher trying to get them to not publish the book, they shifted their tactics and started writing or basically threatening local bookstores, saying that if you have this book on your shelves, you are a party to libel against our client. And it was a campaign that worked. And for a long while, this book, uh, which is Billion Dollar Whale, which is a great book and became a bestseller nonetheless, it was just not on, it was not available for sale in many parts of the world because of this pressure campaign. So I had a, you know, maybe I'm allowing Jones Day to cross a bar that I've lowered too much, but I, in the grand, uh, you know, spectrum of how these pressure campaigns work. This was not one that I personally found offensive. They were fairly civil, if unhappy. And, you know, so I I want to be careful. There are many things that I think Judge Day deserves a lot of criticism for. I don't think this is actually one of them, though. Well, what about the lower echelon lawyers that you're able to talk to? Were any of yeah. them uh, punished by the firm for talking to you? I, you know, not that I'm aware of. And just to be clear, it wasn't just lower level lawyers I was talking to. I mean, there were some very senior lawyers who I think unbeknownst to the firm's management were also talking to me. And it, a couple of them who, you know, had sent me these written, very lengthy, very carefully worded written responses were also having, were speaking to me on a, an anonymous or confidential basis as well behind the scenes. And so, um, as far, to my knowledge, no one has faced professional repercussions from talking to me. I think but look, the book is just now being published. And so Jones Day is just now reading the book. And I'm sure, or it wouldn't surprise me if they can kind of, I don't know, figure out some of the, I hope they can't figure out who I've been talking to, but it's not impossible that they will at least be able to make some educated guesses. And I will be carefully watching to see if there is any fallout associated with that. Um, and my guess is that Jones Day is sophisticated enough and savvy enough 
to realize that it is just an extremely bad look to be seen as punishing people who uh, speak out about a powerful institution. What about now? What about uh, the relationship between the top people at the firm and political interests of uh, uh, the uh, Biden administration? What's the current state of the law firm when it comes to political involvement? Well, there are a couple of lawyers who have gone to work in, I wouldn't say at senior levels, but at notable levels within the Biden administration. And the U.S. attorney for, I believe, Minnesota, Minneapolis, is a Jones Day alum. There are a few others who are scattered in other uh, parts of the government. It's certainly nothing like the huge exodus of talent that went over to the Trump administration. But look, Jones Day lawyers are kind of, there's this diaspora of them now that is scattered all over the place. And in Florida, uh, Rhonda Santos's chief of staff is a Jones Day lawyer or a former Jones Day lawyer. Uh, there are a bunch of Jones Day lawyers who ended up on federal courts, including the federal appeals court in D.C., which is widely regarded as the second most powerful court in the country. Um, and I, I think there's a very good chance that whoever the Republican nominee is in 2024, that person wins, their administration will be stocked with Jones Day lawyers. And I think there's a very good chance that whoever that nominee is, I think. I certainly can't guarantee this, but it would not surprise me in the least if Jones Day plays a leading role in working for that campaign in one capacity or another. And is Brogan still at the top of the firm? Does he still manage it? He is. Yeah, he's been there since he started in uh, the very beginning of 2003. So he's approaching his 20 year anniversary. And there is a lot of speculation that he is going to step down or announce his retirement later this year. and that would be a huge shift for the firm and it'll be really interesting to see whether his successor which by the way he gets to choose his own successor which is one of the kind of perks of leadership at uh, at jones day uh and so it'll be really interesting to see whether he picks as his successor someone who is uh you know kind of cut from the same cloth as him and his senior colleagues or if maybe he goes in a completely different direction and my money is certainly that he's going to pick someone kind of cut from his same cloth, but, you know, I lose money every time I bet, so I wouldn't put much stock on that. Okay, so are you going to be um, keeping your eye on them with another book? What are you going to do next? Oh, God, I'm, I do not have the stomach to do another book on Jones Day, but I certainly am going to keep my eye on them and see what happens, and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Uh, I'm trying to take a breath and um, not do anything super ambitious of my own in the next uh, month or two, at least. Well, your book is getting a lot of attention, which is a great thing for you and for your subject. Um, how has that affected your life? Um, for instance, had a, uh, there was a large excerpt of the book appearing in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. How does mm -hmm. that affect you? It must be great. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. I mean, I'm look, there are a lot of great things about working at the New York Times. Uh, one of them is that it just gives you access to like I know the people who work at the New York Times magazine. It's not a hard thing for me to kind of walk across 
the newsroom or I guess I didn't do that because many of us are working from home, but uh, to contact someone and be like, hey, I've got a book coming out in, in a few months. What do you think about this? Uh, and that's a privilege that, you know, very few authors or journalists get to have. And it also just ma- it's like a pleasure to be able to work with just super high caliber people who on the magazine staff who edit, who fact check, uh, who just ask really smart questions that I hadn't thought of in the book writing process. And so, and it's also just a thrill, right? It's the New York Times Magazine. It's like a huge honor to be published there. And it's interesting in terms of like actual book sales, I'm not, I mean, it certainly helped. I'm not sure how much it really helped. The thing that was, I think, more helpful on, at least according to my people who are my publisher, HarperCollins, is that it really, it it generated a lot more media interest in the run-up to the book. So it helped kind of arrange, it helped them arrange a bunch more interviews and which is how we spread the word about the book. So it was, um, but it also just something, I mean, you know, I obviously read the Times Magazine, I read the Times every day and, I was just very proud to be able to have something um, ambitious published in its pages. Well, you've done a terrific job of the book. And as I mentioned to you before we actually started recording, you cover a lot of subjects that really needed to be talked about. The rise of the big law firm, um, the push for uh, profit, which I think is in a way destroyed the profession. Uh, and it's a very, very useful thing that you've done. And that's just putting aside for the moment all of the great stuff that you've done illustrating how big, powerful law firms can get enmeshed with uh, political causes. I really think you've done a terrific job and you should be uh, congratulated for that. And that's what I like to do. So thank you with so that, much. With that, I really want to say as that. well, you've been a great guest. You give me all kinds of great uh, insight into not just the uh, subject you wrote about it, but about how you wrote about it. So again, that's a terrific thing to do for the audience and I appreciate it. So I think unless there's something else you wanted to mention, uh, I think we're going to call it a day. It's almost uh, almost an hour. I think that's a, a good time to stop. Anything else you want to mention? No, nope, I'm good. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it.